Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Roots and Roots show with your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you history and music from the Black American diaspora. Greg and his guest's goal is to root the show's information in your psyche, providing you the roots to expand knowledge within your community. Now, here's your host, Greg Rashid. Well, I want to say good evening, good afternoon, good morning, good day, wherever you are in the world. This is Greg Rashid with another edition of the Root and Root Show. And we, you know, what we do here is that we go into the heart and the diaspora of the Black American experience and the experience of Africans all over the world on this program. And we go a little bit of everywhere. And you can join the conversation here at 563-999-3479-563-999-3479. Now, a lot of people listen live, but a lot of people listen at the convenience because i got folks that listen all over the world if you're new to the program, everywhere from in the States to Asia, Thailand, South Korea, over in um, Germany, got fans in Russia, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of everywhere. And they listen at their convenience. But some folks, they listen every Sunday at 3 p.m. Mountain Standard Time on KUHSDenver.com, created by the one and only, the great Henry Archuleta. I want to say hi to all my friends in the Colorado region and listen to the show there. And this show is very important to me. This is show I'm doing today. And I say this because for 10 years of my life, in radio, I spent from 2003 to 2013 hosting every Sunday morning on KUVO 89.3 FM in Denver, Colorado, the Gospel Train. And I um, can say, frankly, that I am an expert on gospel, and I play everything from oh, gospel. As I always said, I would play music gospel from the turn of the 20th century into the current day, and I would do that all the time. And I know a number of my listeners who will listen to me on the gospel train are probably listening right now. And that's why I'm really happy to have my guest on here and that she wrote this book that I've been waiting for. I've been waiting for, I didn't know she was going to write it years ago, but it was there was a need out there to write a book about gospel music as far as contemporary gospel right now. And because a lot of you know, a lot of the folks I've interviewed over the years who have written books about gospel music, they tend to be uh, talking about music up until you know the civil rights era. Some go to the civil rights era. Some go to like 1970 after Mahay, you know, when Mahalia Jackson passes in '72. But they stop there, and there's just a wealth of music that's out there, and I'm just happy that my guest wrote this book. When Sunday Comes, Gospel Music in the Soul and Hip-Hop Eras, and it's on the University of Illinois Press. And who I'm talking about is Professor Claudrinia Harold. She's a professor of African-American and African Studies and History at the University of Virginia. And I believe she's on the line. Are you there, uh, Professor Harold? I am. I am. Good evening. It's so good to be here. And it's so good to have you on here. I'm just so happy to have you on here. And I'm so happy that you wrote this book. And, you know, reading the book, I'm, you know, I was just, you know, I want you to first of all tell our listeners, the time you wrote this book, because when I saw it, I said, man, that was difficult, because you are 
in Charlotte, Virginia, at the University of Virginia. Tell them when you began to write this book and what it began to affect that incident that, had, that, that was going on at the time had on you. Oh, that's a that's a great question. I think I've been writing this book on the history of gospel music all my life, and um, it's always been a deep love. And I always had a deep love for the music, but also the commercial side of the music. And in many ways, that um, that love was nurtured by people like yourself. I think um, my love for the music and my serious approach to the music had a lot to do with some of the DJs that I heard in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and so, you know, I'm eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, also listening to Houdini and Run TMC and Michael Jackson oh, yeah. and Whitney Houston. But um, there was a care um, with which they approached the music that shaped me. So, while I went on and, and, you know, wrote about African-American history in the 20s and the 30s, this was always in me. I was always reading about gospel. I was always um, going back and looking at old articles in and, and, and gospel magazines like Gospel Today and Score and even some gospel magazines that no longer exist. Um, right. And so by 2016... I said, you know, I want to go back to this. And in so many ways, the white supremacist rallies of August 11th and 12th of 2017 confirmed why that work was so important, because I don't think I would have survived that moment without being able to listen to James Cleveland and Mahalia Jackson and Aretha Franklin and the Winans. Oh yeah. And um, there's a, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the realization just now that I think there was a lot of emotions that I felt during that period that I repressed, but I will never forget the first day of class. And it was August the 21st, 2017. And so that was only two weeks after uh, the white supremacist rallies that resulted in the death of three people. Um, it was the first day of class, and I'm walking from my car to the office, and this deep uneasiness just overwhelmed me. And I knew that I had to be strong for my students because, remember, at this time, some of the people who had planned the rally were still threatening to come back oh, yeah. and the university had not barred them from the, you know, from, from the grounds. And so I can, and that was so strange. That, that was the strange part of, among other things of that, that they were allowed, if they wanted to, they could have came back. Right. And so I remember, you know, sort of thinking, okay, I got to get it together because I got to be strong for, these young people who are looking at me, including, you know, black students who this is their first week in college. Right. And I remember grabbing my iPod and love jazz, didn't want to listen to jazz, didn't want to listen to funk. The only thing I wanted to listen to was gospel music. Not just because I think it calmed me, but it gave me right. – a sort of hope and a faith and a and a 
it gave me something that still um, I don't understand fully. Um, there was something about the music, and I don't want to pretend like I understand everything. I think it's easy to say, oh, I know it was. No, it just it did something that I'm still fleshing out. And so I think I wanted to write a book about the history of this music that meant so much to me and, and millions of other people and to um, in some ways pay tribute to an art form that shaped me spiritually, intellectually, and also politically. That's the key point. I mean, that's that's excellent. That statement is excellent. And listeners, you can call in here. I'm talking with Professor Claudrenia Harold, the author of the new book, When Sunday Comes, Gospel Music and the Soul in Hip-Hop Eras. It's on the University of Illinois Press, and the number here is 563-999-3479. And I know a number of my gospel-trained listeners that listen to me for over 10, you know, 10 years in Denver are listening right now because they always listen to the show. So you can call in and ask their questions because there's some folks out there who, you know, who want, you know, some people actually still think I'm in Denver or I'm hosting that show. I say, no, I don't do that anymore. I haven't done that in years, mm -hmm. but I host this show. But you can call in here and talk to Professor Harold because this is a, you know, we're going to have a great conversation here. Now, one thing, um, if you don't mind, Professor Harold, between you mm -hmm. talking, I'm going to play some music also as we awesome. discuss some of these folks. Because I'm going to get into some of this music here because this is very important. We can't just have a show about gospel music and not have the music played. So we're definitely going awesome. to do that. Well, but the thing, you know, that's a funny thing. Um, I would play, as I told you, on my show, I would play from the early 20th century until current music. And I would get callers that would call me, and I'd have a segment of folks that say, why are you always playing that old music, that Mahalia Jackson soul stir stuff? <laughs> and then I'd have the other segment that called me, why are you playing that hip-hop mess? Why do you play that tone and that all that crazy, that whining and all that? Why are you playing that? So is this the division on my show? And I'd always get that, but it's like, that's cool. At least they're listening. I don't always say it like that. They might complain, but they like, there's a piece of the music they like. And that's the thing. And, that, you know, mm -hmm. and with this book, those of you who don't know that much about what's going on in the music right now with gospel music, this is the thing. Because, God, you know, the thing I want you also to talk about, which I didn't know until I started playing the music, but you touch on it a number of times in this book, is the difference between gospel music and Christian contemporary. And talk about that. Sure. So, I mean, the thing about gospel music is it's constantly evolving. And believe it or not, there were people in the 20s and 30s who didn't like that bluesy sound of Thomas Dorsey and Mahalia Jackson. So one of the oh, God, beautiful hated things Mahalia about Jackson. Right, yeah. right. So one of the beautiful things about the art form, like any art form, is that it's constantly evolving to reflect the, the changes in the larger world. But for me, gospel music, um, black gospel music, emerges out of, you know, that 1920s, I mean, it merges out of the sacred songs and the spirituals. But when I think about, you know, 
contemporary, the roots of contemporary gospel music. I think of the 1920s and the 1930s and Mahalia Jackson and Thomas Dorsey and the sort of classic blues gospel sound and then the evolution from James Cleveland. Um, and, of course, talk about the great quartets, the Dixie Hummingbirds, you know, the Soul Stirrers, and then you go through the 60s and the 70s. When I think about contemporary Christian music, I think about um, music that came out of the Jesus movement of, um, you know, of, of you know, when you think about the Bay Area and sort of white evangelicals and um, people like Steve Green. Uh, I mean, Keith Green. Um, I think about people, of course, we may say the father of contemporary gospel, I mean, contemporary Christian music is Andre Crouch. And so, there has always been, too, this sort of racial divide in the larger world of Christian music. And so you have um, gospel music that some people may identify, you know, more as uh, rooted in sort of the African-American church, part of the right. soul tradition. And then this contemporary Christian music that, interestingly enough, you know, a leading architect of that sound um, is Andre Crouch, who, you know, emerges in the late 1960s out of Southern California, and he's a part of the Jesus movement. And he, he writes these songs that are just foundational to contemporary Christian music and also um, praise and worship music. You can't talk about that genre of praise and worship without Andre Crouch. And interestingly enough, though, his roots are in the church of God in Christ, you know. So I always right. use soon, very soon as just this interesting song, um, because if you listen to the song and usually the radio version, you know, it's that quintessential contemporary gospel sound from the mid-1970s. But if you listen to the album version, you know, at the end, you begin to hear the elders humming you know, talking about going to see the king. And, you know, those are the folks from his father's church in Los Angeles. And so I, I'm going to make a confession here. When I was growing up, I mean, and I knew Andre Crouch, you know, soon and very soon. And, of course, you know, right. he, when when people wanted to create a gospel sound in secular music, they would go to Andre Crouch. So you also can hear Andre Crouch on Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror. And you can hear Andre Crouch on even Madonna's, um, some of her stuff, um, Like a Prayer. But I remember listening to some of his earlier stuff, you know, Through It All and um, The Blood Will Never Lose Its Power and, and these songs. And, and I remember saying, wow, this sounds really like white contemporary Christian music, not knowing the history, you know, when I'm 10 or 11 that know some of those people that I say, oh, this sounds like this, were actually mimicking Andre Crouch. And so right. um, that's a story that I try to tell in the book about this larger crossover story that involves not black gospel singers going from Christian to secular, but what happened in a post-civil rights moment when evangelical, white evangelical churches, some of them begin to open their doors to black gospel artists. So you get people like B.B. and C.C. Winans and Take Six begin to cross over into, you know, a white market. And so um, I wanted to, I, I really wanted to tell that story because I remember the first time I saw Take Six and it was at a, and it was Take Six and B.B. and C.C. Winans and it was at a predominantly uh -huh. white church. And to be honest with you, I grew up in a 
I can't even say predominantly black Baptist church. It was all black Baptist. I had never been around white worshipers before. So that concert. <laughs> I, I, I hate to I, 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 I'll be I'll be nice tonight. I won't. <laughs> no, I, it's, I, a it world. Like, it's a different you world. It's a different world. It was, you know, it had, and it was interesting because by that time, my my mom had was going to the you know a non denominational church, but it was still predominantly black, and so for me, that concert experience was the first time that I had been around you know, really white Christians. And it, it reminded me when I started doing research, Marvin Winans tells this same story about the first time that he, when he saw Andre Crouch in Detroit. And it was like, okay, he says, you know, this opened up an entire, this, this was like a new world. And so, um, and, you know, of course you watch PTL. And so I'm not saying I've never, I never saw white Christian worshipers, but I've never been around them like that. And so um, that's, you know, that's that's some of the story that I attempt to tell. You do a great job in the book. And there's an old Richard Pryor joke that I'm cleaning up here. He talks about how when, he, you know, and he would go to the black church and it would take the minister like an hour just to say amen, let alone do the sermon and the singing and the gospel. Whereas right. the white church, when he would go in there, the minister would say, Jesus wept, goodbye, and that was it. <laughs> Right. You know, and that was that right. was that was the end. That was the end of the sermon. But and I've had those experiences. I've had to chastise a white choir once in Denver. I'm not going to say the name of the church. They were trying to sing "People Get Ready" by Curtis Mayfield. Oh, it! I never had the pain in my stomach I had <laughs> listening to them rehearsing, trying to sing that song. And put some soul in it, and they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And as I, you know, as a number of folks who, you know, black folks I've worked with over the years, in you know, in church and music, they would say that you know, when it comes to our music, sometimes when it comes to gospel music, you'll notice that they'll say our white brothers and sisters, they'll like brush through it like it's they got to get out of town or something. They won't take the time <laughs> to sing the songs like. They're going to go through it as quickly as they can. Like, we don't want to sing it, but we might as well try. So it's, a, you know, it's a whole different thing. It's a whole different world there. But, I, you know, I'm going to start this. As far as the book itself, you know, and, you, know, I, you, know I love, you know, I wish I could play everyone in this book on the show today. But I'm going to start off because you brought up some information in this book about someone I thought I knew a lot about. And I want you to mm-hmm. talk, talk to my listeners about um, – James Cleveland, because James Cleveland, you got to understand, without him, if listeners have not heard him, you got to understand what he means, not so much, it's just like Andre Krauss, but even more so, not only to mm-hmm. do gospel music, but music in general, mm-hmm. you know, because he, yeah. he is just a, a legend. Yeah, a legend. I mean, there is no analog to James Cleveland, and quite frankly, and I believe this with my heart, we wouldn't be talking right now if it wasn't for James Cleveland. Oh, I don't oh, think yeah, I can understand that it. industry as it exists, um, James Cleveland had a signature voice, master arranger, but he was an institution builder. Um, yeah. Coming out of Chicago's, you know, <laughs> sacred 
uh, tradition, born in during the Great Depression, born in 1932, uh, dies in 1991, um, you know, had the best training that anybody could have, attended Pilgrim Baptist Church, learned under Thomas Dorsey, was the paper boy from Mahalia Jackson, got training but, but from go to, would go to her beauty shop. That's what <laughs> Yeah, would and go just to learning her beauty from her. shop and just listen. You know, and he is an example of this, just the importance in our culture of intergenerational transmission of knowledge. You know, he is an example of what you can create when you listen to the elders and what can be created when the elders take the time to train the next generation. Um, And because he got that training from Mahalia Jackson, Thomas Dorsey, um, uh, Roberta Martin, Martin. C.L. Franklin, You know, goes to Detroit in the 1940s, you know, hooks up with C.L. Franklin, you know, provides a little bit of training to, you know, his talented um, middle daughter um, at the time, Aretha Franklin. um, And then, you know, starts working with the famed caravans, you know, (laughs) you know, one of the baddest groups ever. And then. And I have them. In fact, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to play some caravans a little later, but. Before okay. you go on, to give folks an idea, because there's some folks out there like, hey, James Cleveland, I, yeah, some of these names you're saying, I don't know all these people. Okay. I'm going to play James, James Cleveland, can nobody do me like Jesus. And if this mm-hmm. don't get y'all up, if this don't get you up, I don't know what will. So let's hear that right now. We'll get back with uh, Professor Harold and talk more about the book. But let's hear it right now. James Cleveland on the Root and Root Show.
oh, I need somebody to fan me now. I need somebody, one of the church nurses to come get me now. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm sweating. Oh, oh, my goodness. I forgot I was doing a show. Anyway, <laughs> that is the one and only yeah. James Cleveland. And you hear at the end, Shirley, who we'll get to in a minute. We'll be getting to her shortly. And that's, can't nobody do me like Jesus. And I'm talking, I have the honor to talk to, by the way, Professor Caldrenia Harold, and she's the author of the great book, When Sunday Comes, Gospel Music in the Soul and Hip-Hop Eras. And I tell you, that's, you know, a lot of, you know, when you listen to James Cleveland, you know, you, if you listen carefully, you're hearing the late Teddy Pendergrass, you're hearing Aaron Hall, you're hearing, you know, some very white, that voice. You hear that gravity of Marvin Jr. who was uh, with the Dells. That 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 style of singing, because all those cats come out. Everyone that you hear basically in music come out of, come out of the church, and I know they were influenced by the styles of a James Cleveland. I mean, he was just he's just amazing. So go on and tell me, yeah. tell us a little more about him because I'm you know tell us about the um, what he creates. Yeah, so that's one of the most important things done in music, period. Right, right. So, I mean, that was one of Can't Nobody Do Me Like Jesus, which, of course, was recorded by Andre Crouch um, earlier. But that is um, that's just one of the many hits he had in the 1970s. You know, God is um, Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to me. But his big break comes in 1960. Uh, he signs with Savoy right. Records in 1960, 61. In 1963, he comes out with a definitive album and song, Peace Be Still. And one right. can imagine black folks' need for peace in 1963, the year of Four Little Girls' murder, the year of Mega Everest' murder, the year of the March on Washington. And um, he's a superstar. And, and just to give you kind of a sense, this album stays like in the top five of gospel music for like five years. There are years, even in the 1970s, where it's not uncommon for James Cleveland to have seven albums in the top ten of gospel. Oh, yeah. And that's oh, yeah. because of his relationship with Savoy. Not only did he release a lot of records, but basically – if you wanted to put out a record and you wanted to put it out with Savoy, he could help you do that. And Savoy also um, released a lot of records that were produced by the Gospel Music Workshop of America. And in 97, James Cleveland, not satisfied with just his individual success, he's like, we got to advance the art form. We got to protect black artists. We got to make sure that we protect this art form. We want this art form to develop. We want it to grow. We're going to incorporate soul. We're going to incorporate funk. We're going to incorporate jazz. I mean, he even has a cover of a Donald Byrd song. But he's like, we got to also maintain that tradition. And so he creates the Gospel Music Workshop of America in the moment of the black arts movement, the black power movement, when so many black artistic communities are creating these workshops and collectives and he creates it um the first meeting is in detroit um in 1967 to 1968 and it becomes a association that still exists today and that has 
tens of thousands of members, and they meet annually. Um, and there is um, an academic division. They go over music, and so many great people have come out of that workshop from you know um, who've been involved. A, up it's not just Americans. It's I mean there are folks from all over the world who come to who were coming to that. I don't know if they've had it because of this pandemic. Yeah. Right. right, but yeah, when I attended in 2017, you know, I was in academic class because they have a class where they just go through the history, and they have this thing called the largest traveling gospel library. So a lot of stuff you cannot find anywhere else. They've maintained their collection. But when I was in that class, yeah. you know, there was a chapter from Japan there. Yeah, and I used yeah, to play some. Uh, there was a choir I know out of Japan. I still in contact mm-hmm. with them. I used to play their music on my show, and I would just freak yeah. people out. Yeah, you know, so he gospel was music is everywhere. Builder. Yeah, yeah. So he was an institution builder, and in '75, he comes up with this idea: we want to make, we want to have a gospel equivalent to the Berkeley College of Music. And so he begins negotiations with Floyd McKissick, who's who has this this area called Soul City. Soul City was yeah. a sort of like an independent black town, you know, and there was this idea that it could be an oasis for African-Americans politically, culturally, and economically. So the Gospel Music Workshop of America attempted to establish this relationship with Soul City. It ends up getting blocked, Soul City, by uh, a, a young senator, a senator out of North Carolina named Jesse Helms, and um, the play, it, it just does, it doesn't work out. But that's his, you know, his he was an institution builder, and like I said, you know, I'm, I'm always, you know, the book is organized around biographies, you know this, and so right. sometimes I get these questions, you know, someone will say, well. And I won't say the person, but they'll say, you think James Cleveland was bigger than, you know, blank? I'm like, yes. I mean, there's there's no, in terms of institution building, in terms of, um, in my household, for example, where my family members talk about <laughs> black singers like their family, you know, by first name, when my mom would say James, and my mom probably say, you know, saw James Brown growing up 10, 12 right. times, I... I would always think, okay, is she talking about James Brown or James Cleveland? <laughs> you know, and so yeah. he just he had that kind of um that presence. And even now when you go to the, the workshop, people still talk about Reverend Cleveland. Reverend Cleveland. And just to think about in nineteen seventy two when Aretha Franklin records Amazing Grace, she has two demands. One, that the album be recorded with a live congregation, and two James Cleveland had to be involved, and that was because of his artistic genius, but also she knew that he brought thousands of fans. So it was also, it was an aesthetic and a commercial um, decision. And 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 a lot of folks at that time, yeah, and a lot of folks at that time didn't even, you know, and I say folks, I say mostly the white community, church community, had never even heard of him up until then. Right, and right. it just amazed so them. Right, right. So you'll you'll find um, reviews of that album where people will say, um, "This could be," you know, and that's coming on on the heels of also the Edwin Hawkins and Oh Happy Day. So 
And right. from 59 to 73, 74, there's this idea that gospel music can have kind of this like blues revival um, where people who had not been interested in the art form will get interested in the art form commercially. But you're definitely right. I mean, there were some people um, who were not familiar with James Cleveland at all. And so that's what I think is so interesting about the film Amazing Grace. When you see that, you can clearly well, see, like, oh, yeah. you know, James Cleveland is a superstar in that community, you know, in South Central L.A. among those black people. And so it's interesting to see him kind of like emptying the show and the humor and the timing and just their remarkable, the remarkable chemistry between um, Aretha Franklin and James Cleveland. But, yeah, he's a, he's a, um, it's like, you know, I, I, I do believe that, you know, Mahalia Jackson is in a league of her own, like, I mean, you know, and I think there are contemporary people like a Kurt Franklin, who's just achieved a level of commercial success that you just... And we're going to get to Kurt in a minute. We're going to get to right. him in a minute. But it's just, James yeah. Cleveland is this person, it's the institutional aspect of it where I, I just don't think that there's just not an analog for me. No. It's not. I mean, what he was doing was incredible. I don't know... Maybe you will write it because I don't think there's a book, a bio out there about him. No. I mean, a a real, I mean, no. There needs to be a real bio about that guy. Yeah, I think some of it has, you know, I think some of it has to do sometimes with the challenge of biography and, you know, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's one of the major, major holes in music history. Um, it's baffling. Um, and But, you know, the good thing is there are a lot more people now writing on gospel music and that are, I think, more writing on more recent stuff, like post-Golden Age era gospel right. music. And so I definitely think it's coming. But I, I agree with you. I think there's just... There's so much to talk about. His work with Quincy well, I, Jones. I think, on I think uh, Professor Harold, if I if I can say this, um, I think you should write. Mm 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 Because I think okay, so I mean, we can be we can be honest on this show without being too detailed. There's a lot of complexity about James Cleveland too, and and, oh, and I'm, I think I'm glad um, you didn't bring that up in the. We're not gonna get into that, but I'm glad you didn't say good. that in the book. Right, That's and all it was I'm you know. It, Right, and I think with James Cleveland, I think there's so much biographical complexity, and I know my strengths as a writer, and I also know my weaknesses. And so I think um, I think, and I hope and I pray that I provided a foundation that other people can build on. That's what I really want to do. You know, I just talked to someone who a young a young brother who's now working on a you know he's working on a book on gospel and Thomas Whitfield and. It's going to oh. be awesome. And so I just gave him everything that I had found and, and bought on eBay, and I made copies and gave it to him because that's what we're supposed to do. You know, that's what we're yeah. supposed to do. And, and I'm glad that you're doing that. And listeners, you can join in the conversation again, 563-999-3479. I'm talking with Professor Claudrinia Harold, author of the great book, When Sunday Comes, Gospel Music in the Soul and Hip-Hop Eras on the University of Illinois Press. Now, I'm going to play right now. Well, I want you to talk about another person. In fact, before I go to her, let's go. Let's get to Kurt Franklin. Let's get to Kurt, and I'll go back. Yeah, let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit, because uh, Kurt, um, I have a 
I can say over the years, in my 10 years of doing gospel music, and still doing, I do gospel music on this show all, too. You know, mm-hmm. keep, you know, I do that also. But I got a mixed, I got mixed feelings with Kurt. You know, it's just like, um, and it goes back to just, I don't, I don't know if it's the sampling, but it's like some, someone told me once, we were talking about Kurt, and, and he, you know, and this person just said, well, you know, if you really have been praying or prayed up more or less, and you know, you know, you know what's inside you, you don't need to sample. Because God's music is already in you. If you're going to do gospel, you don't need to sample somebody else. And Kurt is, you know, he does his sampling. And I got to say, I mean, I like, I like some of his music. You know, I'm not hating on anything, but that, I do have that relationship, you know. I do have that, and I understand why there are a lot of folks, when I would play his music on my, on my shows uh, back then, they would get upset. But then there would be the other side that would love it. So let's let's talk a little bit about him. And all you Kirk Franklin fans, I know I don't hate him. I'm glad that he's doing what he's doing. But that's my you know that's my thing with him. But go ahead. Yeah. So I mean, he's um you know he's the epilogue of the book, and I knew that I would end in 1994 because I knew that I did not want to. Um, and I don't want to say not deal with Kirk Franklin, but I think he's also a book. By himself, right. I also yeah. didn't want to deal with the um, it's the internet world. Like to me, 1994 and just entertainment industry. Like when when you start getting into the internet, when you start getting into reality TV, it's just something different. So I thought 94 yeah. would be safe in the sense that I wanted to end with him. I wanted to end with that commercial explosion that was, you know, the reason why we sing in his debut album. And what it did for gospel music, um, I think what it did for crossover gospel music, so I'm going to say this, and and this may be controversial or it may be a little different, but there was a way in which I thought his first album and its crossover success brought crossover in some ways back to the church. So to me, his first album, the reason why I sang, you know, uh, with Be Able, Silver and Gold, it had more of a churchy sound than, say, the music by the Winans or BB and CC Winans. Uh, or, t- you know, so it was interesting to me in living in that moment. And I wasn't at that point. Um, it was like he slicked up to, like, John P. Key. And, you know, so you heard all of you heard that influence in the music. Right. That's a good point. Um, yeah. And so I can just remember, like, the pride. Like, to me, you can't understand Kurt Franklin without, like, TDJ. So, like, I also think in the 90s, church people wanted to be winners, too, you know? And so it's yeah, like it's, I can't it's remember the prosperity the uh, stop, yeah. Right. It's a whole right. different world. And it's not so much, so you know, I remember all of a sudden. Uh-huh. I remember the pride all of a sudden, gospel, that people gospel had music becomes, um, Yeah, gospel music, music becomes praise and worship. Mm-hmm. And that becomes right, a but whole it, it different had, world. Sure. But I'm going to just say this. like, So he wasn't the first person to go gold or platinum. I mean, BB and oh, CC. No. So Arisa went pl- gold in 72. There was a 16-year period before another gospel album by a black artist went gold, and that was BB and CC Wine in 7. Then take six, 
first baby went gold. Then the Winans return right. went gold. Then BB and CC came out with a different lifestyle, and that went platinum. But remember when we're talking about BB and CC, we're talking about a group, you know, hanging with Whitney, good friends. I mean, I mean, just think about it. they had her. She was she just wanted the same background for them. She they go platinum, but they also cross over into a white market. Kurt Franklin right. doesn't do that his first album. So I what I remember about that, like being in Jack, being in being in Philly at Temple, you know, I played basketball. So I remember my teammates loving that right. stuff, but my teammates who are very rooted in the church, but being proud in a kind of way like he made it and he's ours. Like we're not right. complete so that's not to deny that there wasn't, you know I think some of the oh, he's taking it too far. You know, I think that's like stomp, and and those whispers were there, but it was like even when he w- he was doing things that were different, it's like a family member who's doing stuff that's different versus somebody who's doing something different, and you're not sure that they belong right. to you. But I say this about the sampling. Well, there are moments when you listen to James Cleveland, you know, Hallelujah, I love her so. I mean, that's Ray Charles. Oh, there are oh, moments yeah. when you listen to, you know, what, Jesus is the best what, thing that ever happened to me. That's, that's a right. sample of when Gladys he quotes Knight. You know? Gladys Knight. He's, exactly. You know, he, and you, you can know, almost so, yeah, gasping. Oh, <laughs> you know, like, well, some of them are laughing, this? too. Exactly. Um, so the, and so, it's been, you know. I mean, this, it's been done, but the, I guess I'm thinking about more the openly – Taking someone's voice and putting it on your song, and I guess, right. I, guess I got to say too, you know, in in the nineties, you know, that was my period of um, let's say clubbing, and um, mm-hmm. there are some clubs I would go to in Denver where mm. you would hear the song. <laughs> now I ain't gonna clean it up. You would hear at one moment, folks would be on the floor, and they would play that song. Um, you may have been too young with it. You probably remember uh, back, back, back that ass up. That, that, yeah, yeah. That's the song I was and thinking then, about when you were getting yeah. And then the DJ would play a Kurt Franklin song. Let's say "Stop." Immediately mm-hmm. after that, and I remember, I remember folks pulling out. I remember people pulling out crosses and just dancing. Right. <laughs> yeah, the it's thing yeah. They did a minute ago, but. But now they got the cross in their hand, you know, so that made it different. But it's still still doing the same thing. Yeah. And I just so always found, found this. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's funny for me to kind of hear that because my uncle wrote The Mighty Clouds of Joy and Mighty High, so which went number Ooh, one on the right. dance chart that. in 75. Yes. yes. Right. So, it's you know, so it's interesting when I think about that. You know, my uncle was a DJ in Jacksonville, and then he, you know, he was a he was a writer and a, and a staff producer for Atlantic, and then, you know, had some tough times. But then he went, he did, so he did Mighty Clouds of Joy, and then he wrote um, Candy State and Young Cards Were Free. But it's interesting oh, to man. me because it's, it's that song, Mighty High, when I talked about Charlottesville, that's one of the songs I listened to. And I never really don't tell my family, but that's never been my favorite song at all. And, um, you know, it, but it was something about it. And, you know, my uncle died pretty young in his 40s in Brooklyn, you know. And, but it was something uh-huh. like I could hear him talking to me, you got to ride the mighty high, you know. And 
Like I think, but that song people played in the discos, and 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 what's oh, interesting yeah. for me is, I'm thinking about him writing that 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 black man that grew up in the Baptist church, but doing secular, but like what it meant for him to you know work with the mighty clouds of joy, and so, but also their discomfort in the beginning with with that song, you know, like um, Joe Lagan wanted, you know, he was like. You sure you're not talking about marijuana? You know, it's like, are you sure this, oh, yeah. is, this is not about drugs? I, and my uncle's like, no, this is about God, you know. And, and, so and I like, remember, I'm glad I you think, brought it up in the book. Because you mentioned the thing, and I remember the day that they were on Soul Train. Oh, yeah. It was and they came out, they came out, I think, in maroon, maroon jumpsuits. <laughs> and I just remember, I said, this is Monty Clouds of Joy. And I like that yeah. song, but it was it was kind of weird. It was weird, you know. They were looking like the shy lights or something up there. You yeah, know, the temptation. And they were uncomfortable. And it was, it was, I bet, yeah, I bet they were. Yeah, they were. They you know, were but, very. Um, I mean, they were uncomfortable. I mean, and and they they were kind of forced into that because not forced into that that, but they had been on Peacock and Peacock had been sort of taken over by. Um, ABC, you know, ABC is right. trying to figure out like the black market, you know, so even my uncle who had been mainly with Atlantic and working with Wilson Pickett, you know, first person he gets is B.B. King. So then he also wrote, I like to live the love life that I, I, I love to live the life that oh, I man. sing about in my song. Yeah. So it's like, um, so it's interesting to me, but I hear what you're saying about Kurt Franklin. I think I sometimes struggle more with, I struggled more in the 90s. So I'm going to be honest, I kind of left I still listen to the gospel, but I found myself listening to the 70s and the 80s more. So even like that praise and worship turn, um, right? I kind of, that didn't, I like the mass choir sound. Yeah. Um, Mississippi mass really choir, you like that? Yeah. And at times to commute, I wasn't into that kind of praise and worship, you know, it just didn't hit it's, for me like yeah. that, but well, um, but what I I'm going to do, I'm gonna do right now, uh, Professor Harold, sure. if you don't mind, I'm going to, you know, because I know some people are saying, well, you know, I've never heard of Kurt Franklin, so I'm going to play a Kurt Franklin. I'm going to play Looking uh, for You. Okay. And there's a sample in there, an open sample. Mm-hmm. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show, Kurt Franklin and Looking for You. Okay. To all my people in the struggle, you think God's forgotten about you. Here's some pain medicine. Let's go! You in your car, you at the house, on your job, be encouraged, boo. Come on!
from a mighty long way. That's why we love you. Come on. I like this song. <laughs> that's Kirk Franklin uh, looking for you. And that's uh, the sample is Patrice Rushing's Haven't You Heard. And and by the way, if you're just tuning in, um, I'm talking with a professor, Claudrinia Harold, author of the new book, When Sunday Comes, Gospel Music and the Soul and Hip Hop Errors on the University of Illinois Press. And we're just playing a little gospel praise and worship music that time. But that, you know, that's, I have to say this, Professor Harold, that my thing is that that song, the original intent of that song was about not love of Jesus, but love as far as finding someone in the club. Mm-hmm. I've been looking for you. Haven't you heard? And to kind of twist that, and I, you know, that's, that's what gets me. And I guess also the fact that when I saw Kurt Franklin in person, his choir I thought, you know, I just like didn't know where I was and saying, well, I'm at, uh, I guess I'm at the um, 
the most deaf show or something. I, you know, because this little group that he had with him, they were all in stilettos, and they were, like, putting on the show. I'll just say that. But anyway, but I'm not, I'm not going to hate him. I'm not, I, I want everyone, listeners, I want you to know, I want you to know, Professor Eric, I'm not hating him. But that's my, that's my kind of critique. So anyway, yeah. you know, what, you know, what do you think? Yeah, you know, that would be in my top five. You know, I'll just say that. Um, and I think it's interesting because, you know, I think for somebody who may only listen to gospel but who used to be in the club, um, you know, sometimes sampling can bring back memories and produce kind of structures of feeling. Um, right. At the same time, you know, it's like um, – that's a big debate in gospel. I mean, I think about the great civil rights activist and theologian and writer, Wyatt T. Walker. Um, he has a book called Somebody, Somebody's Calling My Name, and he talks about gospel form. And I think one of the reasons we have these debates about the form of gospel and the incorporation of hip-hop sounds or funk is can all forms, musical forms, sonic forms contain spirit you know i mean so for some people it's not just you know it's not just about oh you know that's just too worldly but it's like really raising this question about can all forms invite the presence of the spirit right and i i think we can we can agree to disagree and sometimes we disagree but when I go back to August the 21st, 2017, um, there were certain kind of songs that I listened to. And, and, you know, the thing was that they were not all the same sonic form, but even if it was, right. you know, the whinings, you know, and I'm listening to question is, you know, and it's question is, you know, will I ever leave you? And the answer is, you know, no. That that song is not like in 1981. Some people may have thought, well, that's not a traditional church song. But there is a way when yeah. I was listening to the whinings in the 80s, quietness to the music, the studio production that provided a space for critical reflection. And so while the sonic form was different, you know, at times, you know, some of the whinings stuff may have sounded like the OJs. But there was yeah, something about right. Marvin's lyrics that you know there was there was a um so and not just biblically based because something but there was it was it was raising questions about what does it mean to be human what does it mean to be human and navigate the world. Um, yeah, I mean, one of my favorite songs, yeah, because one of my favorite songs of the Winans, I may play that on here is a friend and Aaron Hall was mm-hmm. on there from God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when you listen to the lyrics, I mean, it's a very spiritual song yeah. with this singing on there. Right. The music is what they call at the time New Jack music, but exactly. the song is powerful. The song in is fact, powerful. In fact, I'm going to play that now. I was I was going to play yeah. something else. So let me, if you don't mind, I'm going to play. A, I think I got it on here. Yeah, I'm going to play a friend That's right great. now. That's yeah, because right. I, I want to play that with Aaron Hall. Let me make sure I had it queued up. Yes, there it is right here. Because let's hear that. And then after that, I'm going to play Your Friend by the Caravan. Because I want mm-hmm. you to talk about Shirley, uh, Shirley Season. Yeah. 
The list here right now, the whinings of friends on the Root and Root Show. Hey, what's happening, man? Hey, oh, what's doing? up, man? I'm so glad to be back. It's yeah. good to have you back. I can't believe I'm with the whining. <laughs> <laughs> you know, somebody that's with all of us. You yeah. know, he that hath friends must. First show himself friendly. Right. Well, I I know by being in this place that yeah. there's a whole lot of people that want to know who this friend is. Why don't you tell them about it, Mark? Well, there is a friend that sticks closer than any brother. I got, I got a lot right. of brothers, right? Yeah. You know who that friend is.
Okay, what well, we just did there on the Root Root Show, we did two friend songs. That last one was by the Caravans and Your Friend, and before that we did the Winans and A Friend, and featured uh, Aaron Hall with the Winans and the Caravans. Some of you don't know, uh, that features Albertina Walker, Inez Andrews is one of the greatest singers ever. Uh, Dorothy Norwood, I think James Cleveland may be on the organ on this. And the one and only Shirley Caesar. And I'm interviewing right now, talking to the, and I, I you know, actually, Professor Harold, I want to call you Reverend Harold. That's why I, <laughs> I keep hesitating because you've, written, you've written, written a gospel. I mean, you've really written a great book here. So I'm talking to Professor Claudrinia Harold, author of the book When Sunday Comes, is on the University of Illinois Press. And I want to thank you for the time because I said it would be a 30 minute interview with the music and all. We've gone a little overboard, but I'm just great, you know, just happy that you, you've taken the time to do the show today. And I want you to, if you can talk a little bit about Shirley Caesar, because she's, she's also, all these folks in the book are important, but she's just, what she's done over the years is just a. Yeah, she's a powerhouse. Um, and I think she is unparalleled in her talent her creativity, her willingness to move beyond her sonic comfort zone, and her longevity. Um, Shirley Caesar has been not only productive for multiple decades, but she has been relevant, you know, from her start with the caravans in the mid-1950s until, you know, her hits in the 60s as a solo artist in the 70s and the 80s. Um, I think sometimes we unfairly pigeonhole her as a traditional artist, but she really mastered so many contemporary sounds. When she was at road shows, she, she showed that she could do funk. If you listen to some of her stuff from HOB in the late 60s and early 70s, I mean, these really deep, soulful cuts. Um, she could even in master fact, I country. Think I had a um, – she actually raps on something I used to – I couldn't find it, but from the from like 2004 or five. she mm-hmm. actually does a song. She starts from that – yeah, because you can actually say she was rapping way back when in the sense of some of her songs, but <laughs> – She's at, and right. I want to say it was with Tone, but she yeah, actually I mean, does a little rap. Yeah, I mean, she just, um, she represents the best of the black sermonic tradition. I mean, to me, she's like, she's like Mahalia Jackson and Zora Neale Hurston oh, yeah. rolled into one. Um, oh, yeah. Her, her, um, she could even master country. I mean, it was interesting that you talked about the sampling, because if you think about No Charge, you know, that was a song first recorded by Melba Montgomery, a country singer. That's right. And um, then, I think, you know, when she signs with Word Records and her and Al Green are like two of the first African-Americans to sign with Word. Once again, we talk about the racial divisions within the, the Christian music industry. Um, to think about a company that had been created, you know, um, I guess in the, in the in the late 50s or early 50s, and, you know, it's like in the 1980s when they begin to have African-Americans on their roster. But her first album with Word, she works with the, the noted country producer Tony Brown, who's like, you know, yeah. a megastar. 
and records a Bob Dylan song. You got to serve somebody. Of course, interestingly enough, it's his gospel song, but um, her range. And then, you know, 88, she records um, Live in Chicago, which features Hold My Mule, which is sampled, of course, later um, in 2016, you know, the Thanksgiving song. So her 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 ability to to traverse different sounds and also her politics. I mean, in 1987, yeah, she runs for a city council seat. I mean, she, so just think about this when, when shouting John or hold my mule is a hit in 1988, she's also like, she's on the city council of dorm because she's committed to helping poor people. She's committed to dealing with issues of poverty and homelessness and, and racism. So for me, Shirley Caesar is, is um, the model singer activist. Um, she she's another one in the book that um, that's peerless, and and she's another one. She's one person though that I'm so fortunate. There's so there's been so there's a lot written about her. So it's interesting the music critics like who wrote for the Washington Post and the New York Times. They always loved Shirley Caesar. So. Um, it was it was easy to find things and of course she's written her own um her own autobiography you know she has an autobiography right. but um just in, i mean i've I, there now i think there are now a couple of dissertations on her and there's one dissertation that um just basically looks at her like her sermonettes and like the richness the literary richness of her she's amazing i mean she is um it's so funny it's, 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 because yeah, it she doesn't talk mm-hmm. about her genius in that way because I think when you are serving God or you see yourself as that, it, you know, that's the tricky thing about gospel music um, is that when you're, when you see yourself as a vessel of God, you can't ever say like, oh yeah, I'm a genius, you know, like, <laughs> you know, people in the secular world would just, you know, but so she, she's, she doesn't talk about herself in that way. But I would say of all of the people in the book, she kept me up at nights the most, not in pain or anything, but just really deeply appreciating her genius. Like I, I would want to ask her like, okay, what did you, what, what, what do you read? Like, you know, because you just like, yeah. like, how do you come up with shouting John, which is also talking about class politics in the black community. It's, it's just, she's just, for me, she's just, she's just brilliant. And I appreciate and especially, her and especially with this month being International Women's, you know, month. Mm-hmm. You know, and actually it's just like Black History Month. It's always every day is like Women's Day, and, and every day is, to me is Black History Day. But she is someone mm-hmm. I know a number of people need. You really need to know about Shirley. Mm-hmm. Shirley is a music legend. She's you know just like James Cleveland. This is not just a gospel music legend. This is a music legend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, she's yeah. just like, and to yeah, know that she's I was out there singing and just being an activist and just doing everything, it's incredible. Yeah, it's, it it's still really sounds incredible. great. Still yeah. sounds great. I mean, her voice is just so strong. I was, I was on a panel with uh, at the studio museum in Harlem last week or, and it was a Zoom but they were it was a talk about Whitney Houston and I showed a clip from Whitney Houston when she's performing live in Washington D.C. and she has different people to come in and sing parts of Shoot and so Shirley Caesar is uh-huh. in the crowd and you know Shirley Caesar she, she, so Whitney says you know Shoot for Jesus 
and Shirley Caesar is on for maybe 30, 40 seconds, and she just she just kills it. I mean, it's just, and you can see, like, Monica's in the background, and as soon as Shirley Caesar gets the, the mic, she's standing up. So, you know, BB1 is the same way. So, like, black folk in the they know, know, but, you know, there are some folks in the crowd who are not in the know. But in oh, that no. matter of just 40 seconds, you could see them looking at each other and like, who is this? Who is this? You know, and she just, you know, and it's interesting to watch because, you know, she's a source of inspiration for Whitney. And at the same time, I think at that point in her life, Whitney saw herself as a cultural archivist. It's like, I'm going to teach y'all about these people y'all should know. And she just, right. I mean, Shirley Caesar just, I mean, just, just, <laughs> just you know, just um, wrecks the place, and so she is, um, you know. And also, I mean, I you know, I shouldn't. She's kind of like the Jane. She's also an amazing live performer. You haven't seen anything until you've seen Shirley Caesar oh, singing and dancing. I mean, yeah, Shirley Caesar, you can't. You can describe her live, but you can't really because right. of so. What she's doing up there, and what you know, the, you know, just the sermon she's giving. The he, I mean, she she does everything. She can make you cry. She can make you laugh. She's a comedian up there. And she does everything. Right, right. She, right. she puts on the show. She get right. you know she she's something. But I am gonna play hold my you know hold my mute. Mm-hmm. I gotta play that. But before you know, but I'm not gonna keep you any longer because you've been you know you've been so gracious to stay on here that long. And as you know, Hold My Mule takes forever. That's a long song there. But I just want to thank you for being on and just, I got to get you back on here again because we just touched this, you know, just the essence of this book. And I want folks out there who are listening to please get the book when Sunday comes, Gospel Music and the Soul and Hip Hop Errors on the University of Illinois Press. The authors I've been talking to today, Professor Caldrinia Harold, and it's a great book. And what do you want people to get out of the book? What do you hope that they get out of it? What do you want to inspire them to do once they read it? Besides listen to the music, but what do you want them to get out of it? I want people to understand how central gospel music is to our culture and the care that so many artists put into the art form but how the growth of the art form was so dependent on not just the artists but the music but the but the the fans the radio right. announcers DJs um I want I want people to get a chance to look at an art form and and really see black people at their absolute best um, so I hope that people gain a deep appreciation for um, gospel music. It's commercial growth during the post-civil rights era. Um, it's theological tensions. And it's um effort to say something meaningful politically. And, and I just that. hope that mm-hmm. you take the art form seriously, that you go out and you listen to songs and you Maybe go and look at some old records and and read the liner notes. And if you wanna, you know, put on put on put on the music while you listen to the to the to the, put on the music while you uh, read the book. That's great. That's what it was um, 
I wrote it for um, the fan of music, people who love music. And I have to say, too, because obviously I love music, I love gospel, but also if you read it carefully enough, it is a, it's just a history book of, of African-American music, like you say, post-civil rights movement. Because there's a whole political yeah. aspect that you keep bringing up in the book. That yeah. they, you know, yeah. and I hope that the readers who pick, you know, people who are listening to pick it up will catch all of that. Will yeah. catch that because that's yeah. the key component. Yeah, I learned about I right. I thought deeply, and I'm you know I'm gonna I'm gonna go now, but I thought deep my entry into the world of politics in terms of thinking about South Africa was the wine is let my people go. You know, when that song yeah, came out in 1985, that um, reinforced some of the things that I was hearing about on the news. And this came out in a moment where, the, you know, particularly the white church was conspicuously silent about, right. you know, apartheid. And so um, that music also played a critical role in my political formation. And so I think there's a tendency among some scholars and critics to see hip hop as the genre that was the CNN of black America. But I wanted to bring attention to an art form that for a lot of kids growing up in Jacksonville or Detroit or Oakland, um, gospel music was that. And I think that's the only way that you can explain how you can listen to maybe an R&B station or a black radio station and hear back that thing up. And the next song you hear is Donnie McClurk and we fall down and nobody misses a beat or how you can understand, you know, Kanye West having the number one gospel album for so long or Snoop Dogg having a gospel album. It's because gospel music is also central to the culture. And I hope everyone, everyone that's in music, that. you know, right? Because every every black entertainer at some point they were they came out of the church at some point. Mhm. Mhm. Even mm-hmm. the most hardcore rapper, at some point, their mama, their grandmother, somebody set them down in the church when they were a child, and they they caught all that. They listened. And this and. And they never stop listening. So that's what I think is no, important. No, that's the thing. I think, I think people think sometimes, you know, if we're going to trace the roots, <laughs> the roots and routes of black music and go through the church, we're going to talk about Mahalia Jackson and Sam Cooke, and maybe we'll get to James Cleveland, but maybe not, but we'll stop there. But I want us to think about a world in which, you know, somebody's CD changer, I don't know, I guess iPod playlist, has Robert Glasper and, um, right. you know, the Clark sisters and Snoop Dogg and, you know, that's the, and Beyonce and, you know, that's the, that's the reality. It's not that gospel that's music it. is something of the past, but it's a living art form um, that people are still um, engaging with and immersed in, you know, and I and I'll just leave with this. I want us to think about this is that when we memorialized and remember two arguably two of the biggest pop stars um of the twentieth century, um, Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston, 
Michael Jackson, you know, his brothers roll his casket down in the front of Staples um, Center, and we hear Andre Crouch singing, soon and very soon we're going to see the king. And then to think about Whitney Houston and Marvin Winans eulogizing her, and when he sings Let the Church Say Amen, a song written by Andre Crouch. Yeah. So in those two iconic moments, you know, Andre was there in particular, and and gospel music was there. That's something well said. Thank you so much for coming on. And I have to get you back on, not so much to talk about this book again, but to talk about this other book that I have not, I never had heard of, but I got to get, The Rise and Fall of the Garvey Movement in the Urban South, 1918 and 1942. I got to get, you know, yeah. I got to talk to you about that one. That'd be great. All right. So thank you so much. Thanks for you having me. Safe. Thank you for giving, you know, so much of your time and just writing a superb book. You just take care. I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Now, again, that was uh, Professor Claudrinia Harrell, author of the book, When Sunday Comes on the University of Illinois Press. And I'm going to play, like I said, I'm going to play right now, Shirley Caesar. And, this, you know, I don't, you know, I had a dear friend. He was the clubhouse manager for the Colorado Rockies in Denver, Richard. I don't know if Richard's still around, but he, you know, he used to love to, you know, always would ask me to play Hold My Mule. And I'm going to play that right now, wherever Richard is right now. I hope he's hearing it in some way. So let's hear Shirley Caesar, Hold My Mule on the Root and Root Show. I just want to take time to tell you a story about a man called Shaolin Young. John joined a dead church. They didn't believe in shouting. They didn't believe in dancing and speaking in tongues. But when they opened the doors of the church, John joined that church. And when John joined that church, he came in dancing. Everybody, everybody got disturbed. Because John was dancing all around the church. The deacons ran, sat him down, he jumped back up. They tried to hold his legs, his hands were going. When they turned the hands are loose, the feet were going. It's just a light fire. It's just a light fire. Shut up in the phone. Yeah. They did everything they could to stop old John from shouting. And when they couldn't finally stop it, they made up in their mind, we've got to go out to John's house, y'all. But something is wrong with him. Doesn't he know? We don't act like that in our church. Doesn't John know? We've got dignitaries in our church. We go ahead. We go ahead.
We're going to John's house. Well, when they got out there, they found this old 86-year-old man. Him and an old beat-up mule plowing. In the field, they drove up out of the deacons. They got out of their fine cars. They walked over to John. John looked around at their whole mule. Walked over to him and said, Brethren, I know where you've come out here. You've come out here to tell me that I praise the Lord too much. You've come out here to tell me that I dance too much. One of the deacons told him, if you don't stop shouting, if you don't stop dancing, we're going to put you out of our church. Somebody say Oh, I'm gonna praise the 
giving honor, God, Heavenly Father. I'm moving to your spirit, control every part of my life and all the drama. Even through the pain, even through the problems, I'ma still praise your name. I got a little testimony, wanna tell you about it. Devil tried to break me down, knock me off the mountain. I told my mom about it, she just started singing, shouting. Said my blessings coming soon, flowing like a fountain. Your face stronger through your trials and your tribulations. But give it all to God, a little time, a little patience. Name it, claim it, your joy coming in the morning time. Keep this on your mind, even on your grind. Take him with you everywhere you go to keep your soul fed. She rubs some blessed oil on my forehead. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, take control. Make him whole joy coming full. Forward.
Another Daryl, Daryl Coley with Donald Lawrence and the Tri City Singers, and that was When Sunday Comes. And I played that because the book that I've been talking about tonight by the author uh, called Drina Harrell, When Sunday Comes Gospel Music in a Soul and Hip Hop Eras on the University of Illinois Press. Please get that book, it's a great book. And before that, I played. Um, the one and only Chuck Brown. I'm looking at my notes here. Look. <laughs> Chuck Brown, a little go-go music, and that was Can't Nobody Do Me Like Jesus. And before that, we did um, the Clark Sisters with Snoop Dogg, and the name of that one was His Love. And we started to set off with Shirley Caesar, the amazing, the great, superb Shirley Caesar, and Hold My Mute on the Root and Root Show. And I hope you enjoyed this show this evening. I certainly did. Enjoy, and I want to thank again Professor Caldrina Harold, and just going to have her back on here sometime. But 
got to get ready to get out of here now. And I just, I may be, you know, I play gospel music off and on those of you that listen to the show. And who knows, I might turn this to the whole gospel. You never know what I may do on here. But again, I hope you're doing the right thing as far as helping out in your community because we're all in this together, this pandemic. I want you to go in love and go in peace. And if you can help someone in your community by a senior in particular, if you can, like, get their trash, pick the trash up, help them raking leaves, shoveling snow, whatever is going on in your community, in your province, wherever you are in this world, to help a senior, get um, help them get groceries, whatever you can do, but keep that social distancing. That would be great. If you can buy a a student, a young person who's not in school now, a laptop, donate a laptop or a tablet, computer, whatever you can do, that'd be great. And if you can help them as far as paying uh, Wi-Fi, <clears throat> excuse me, Wi-Fi, that'd be great too. I've been shouting here with the music, and that's my, my voice is getting hoarse now, but uh, with the music I've been playing. But, yeah, if you can do that, help a youngster in your community not going to school now, that'd be greatly appreciated. But, again, with Greg Rasheed. Going love and going peace. We'll see you next time on the Root and Root Show. Hug someone out there, but hug them as far as just touching their arms or doing that and wearing those masks and do that social distancing. Take care. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. And remember, spread the knowledge, share the power.